0: from gimlet i'm alex bloomberg and this is without fail the show where i talk with artists athletes entrepreneurs visionaries of all kinds about their successes and their failures and what they've learned from both What song is this?
1: Carmen Fantasy.
0: Uh-huh. This is, this is you playing this. Do you recognize— This is me. Yeah. What, what, what is—what's uh, the occasion?
1: This actually was when I was playing the talent um, portion, I think, for the Miss Minnesota competition.
0: My guest on the show today has been a lot of things. A violin prodigy, Miss Minnesota. She went on to win Miss America, actually. But if you know her name, and her name is well-known— It's possible you know her as the person who brought down Roger Ailes, the longtime chairman of Fox News, the man who built that network into what it is today. My guest's name is Gretchen Carlson. In the summer of 2016, she filed a lawsuit accusing Roger Ailes of sexual harassment. Before that, she was an anchor at Fox, best known as one of the three hosts on its morning show, Fox and Friends. During our conversation, we talked about the many influences and decisions that led her to the role she eventually came to play the woman who, in bringing down one of the most powerful men in all of media, helped jumpstart the Me Too movement. And what I realized during our conversation was that, in many ways, it all began with the violin. Tell me about playing the violin as a kid. Like, how how did it start? What do you remember about Mm -hmm. it? You know,
1: I don't distinctly remember this, but my parents have said that I would hear commercials on television and then I'd go to the piano and kind of plunk out the tune. And so they thought to themselves hmm, maybe we should (laughs) sign her up for piano lessons, right? Uh And so we actually went up the road to the neighborhood piano teacher, and she took one look at my hands and said, oh, my goodness, her hands are way too small. She's never going to be any good. Um, And she recommended that I go up to the local school and check out the instruments. Oh, wow. So it actually, starting to play the violin was this fluke thing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it just, I don't know, it just clicked. It was like... I just loved it.
0: From the beginning? Yeah, I just, I just loved it. Even when it. you're squeaking through everything. Yeah, like,
1: and and I mean, I, I, I guess I loved it so much and maybe had a knack for it that the squeaks were not around that long.
0: Gretchen continued to advance in the violin, and pretty soon, she wound up auditioning for one of the premier teachers in the Midwest, who's at the State University in Minneapolis.
1: To be taken on as a student, I had to perform in front of all of her college students. Mm-hmm. So there I was at like, Seven or eight years old, and I still remember I played the bumblebee. Oh, the <laughs> yeah, that was, yeah, okay, and uh, and it was hotter than hell. You know, no air conditioning in an old college building, windows uh-huh. up, probably August, <laughs> and I can still you know feel myself playing this song, and she she took me on as a student.
0: You made the cut. Yeah, she took yeah. you on, and
1: that really you know put me on a different trajectory because her students were all at a different level.
0: So you're like sort of on a musical prodigy track at that point. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I mean, I don't know how much kids think about what they want to be in life. But, yeah, I'm sure, my, I'm sure in my parents' mind, this was what I was going to do.
0: What was, what was your relationship like with your parents?
1: My dad was a softie and my mom wasn't. <laughs> um, but, you know, I got all my drive from my mom. Uh Like, she told me every night when she put me to bed, you can be anything you want to be in this world. But it was my dad who understood music. And so we would go down into the living room, and he would sit in the same chair, and I would perform what I was going to do at the competition. What would he say? He would always close his eyes while he was uh, listening, and then he would tell me what, you know, what he thought. And then I knew I was ready Mm -hmm. after I had performed for my dad. But that all changed.
0: Yeah, so so how did that all change?
1: You know, it was great at the beginning, Mm -hmm. but then I didn't really like being known as the violin girl, Mm -hmm. you know? It was, I was like this weird young kid who happened to play the violin well. Mm -hmm. And so I was hanging out with, when I went to these camps, like the Aspen Music Festival, I started going when I was 10, and I would sit out in orchestra break on this rock, and I'd cry my eyes out. Because who the hell wants to talk to the 10-year-old kid? Right. Everyone else was 18 to 25. Uh-huh. And so it was such a lonely, lonely experience to actually be really good at something. And I realized that to be at the level that I wanted to be, which was a concert artist, one of the premier soloists in the world— that I was going to have to give up everything else in my life. And thankfully, I loved so many other things. I loved academics. I loved sports. Mm -hmm. And that would all have had to have gone away. Even boyfriends would have had to have gone away. And I liked them too. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, there were just these distractions. And so I told my parents that I've, I remember I went up to their bedroom and I grew up on the Mississippi River in Minnesota. And I remember saying to them, I'm going to throw the violin in the Mississippi River, <laughs> which I'm sure came as like a huge... Death. They're like, no, no, no. Um, but I just, I, I had had it, you know, I just, I wanted to do other things in life. And they were devastated.
0: How did they let you know they were devastated? What did they say?
1: They were devastated. <laughs> <laughs> they told you, like, oh, yeah. Gretchen were devastated. Yes. And yeah. it wasn't, it, it was. it was because of... I think it was because of all the time I had put into it and to the level that I had achieved. And they felt like I was making a mistake uh-huh. by throwing that all away.
0: So you graduated from high school. Mm-hmm. You're a valedictorian, an elite level musician. You go to Stanford. What were you thinking about your life, your future at that point? If you had a career goal in mind, what was it? What was it?
1: <laughs> Everything. Uh-huh. Um so luckily at Stanford you don't have to declare your major till you're a junior, uh-huh. which was fantastic for me because I changed my major like a gazillion times. I thought I was gonna be a doctor mm-hmm. and then I realized I couldn't look at blood. Um I thought I was going to be a lawyer. I mean, my my life is sort of like all these different zigs and zags and there's been a lot of unexpected turns. Uh,
0: I, I think one of the sidetracks you're referring to then is is Miss America, right? Like Oh yeah. Yeah.
1: So so <laughs> that was not anywhere. In my realm of possibility as a kid. Never.
0: And how did you take that zig to Miss America? Like what, what prompted that?
1: My mother. So she called me when I was studying at Oxford and she said, I got this brochure in the mail and I think I found something perfect for you to try. And I said, (laughs) what is it? She said, it's called the Miss America competition. And I said, mom, are you nuts? I said, I am not doing that. I, I am not a pageant person. Uh-huh. I love to eat and I'm not going to give that up. So, you know, I'm not interested. She goes, well, 50% of your points that says right here are based on talent. Uh-huh. And 30% is how smart you are in the interview. And those are things you have.
0: Uh-huh.
1: And I said, not interested. So we didn't talk about it. And then uh, she called me back. And I was supposed to stay in London for uh, another program, mm-hmm. um, actually through Georgetown that summer. And it was really hard to get into, and I was really looking forward to it. <laughs> and somehow she convinced me that now was the time. She had read a, an article about the person running the organization that they were specifically looking for more Ivy League kinds of candidates and things like that. She said, "So the time is the time is right for you right now, and you have this talent."
0: I'm so I'm I'm fascinated. So your mother has come up twice now as like a sort of a motivator. What what was going on there? Do you think why was that important to her?
1: I think that they both my parents were <laughs> looking for a way to get me back to the violin. Ah. Uh... Yeah, because obviously if it was worth half your points, I had to practice again. <laughs>
0: Fascinating. Yeah. Oh, so they wanted to get you back into yeah. concert violin playing. I think so. Via Miss America. It's
1: the same reason why I think they really wanted me to go to school on the East Coast, because they thought that I would be closer to New York and the teacher that I had been uh-huh. studying with at Juilliard and that I would rekindle my my interest. Um, they were the antithesis of stage parents. Right. So I don't want anyone to get that depiction at all. It It's that you know in the midwest especially and in my family it was this protestant work ethic uh-huh. you know you've been given talents and god expects you to make the most of them
0: so not pursuing the violin was sort of like in their minds it was just like a squandering of this gift that you had exactly so they thought like okay well this maybe through miss america this can this can get you back to that how how did they convince you to do it
1: My mom's an incredibly convincing person. I mean, she still is today. (laughs) What'd she say? I talk to her almost every day. I mean, Uh you know, listen, I'm blessed to still have my parents in my life. And they've been my rock and my foundation Mm -hmm. through everything. Mm -hmm. (sighs) Especially as of late. So you know my mom just has convinced me to do a lot of things in my life mm-hmm. and it's always to in her mind fulfill my life yeah. so that's what miss america was all about so i um i came home from oxford whether or not i wanted to and um And I I think I entered the first competition that August. And and then I won. And so then I was, you know, going to be going on to the state thing. And then I had another huge decision because I went back to Stanford in the fall of my senior year. And then I realized, you know, if I really want to try to achieve this, I really can't be going to Stanford at the same time (laughs) and carrying all these credits, you know. So I dropped out. And that was a huge thing, because I went to the female dean and told her—she was the only person I told on the entire campus, because uh, I had to.
0: Right. And
1: I said, you know, I'm, I'm going to stop out. That's what it was called. I'm going to stop out from Stanford, um, and I'll come back, but I'm, I'm stopping out. And she's like, why? And I'm like, because uh, I'm going to try and win Miss America. <laughs> and she was like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And I was like, thanks. Um. So that was sort of the reason to not tell anyone else. And plus, I just didn't, you know, the stereotypes that come with competing in Miss America back then were not necessarily, you know, who I thought I was. And, you know, I was a tomboy my entire childhood. Mm -hmm. So that didn't seem to fit. And right.
0: and brainy and driven professionally and like yeah. and all these things that are sort of like not necessarily what you think of front of mind when you imagine like sort of Miss America and pageantry. I know, in but
1: unfortunately that stereotype has yeah.
0: sort of gone on mm-hmm. way
1: too long, um, and it's something I fought. You know, after after I achieved that too. Listen, I I fought that anyway with just having blonde hair and being short. Mm-hmm. You know. I think it's sort of like the theme of my life of being underestimated in almost everything. Hmm. And a lot of that was because of of really stupid things. Right. But that's the world we live in. Yeah. So, you know, so I didn't tell anybody. Um and I went home and I um and I just really immersed myself into preparing. So I did go back to the violin. You know, I went uh-huh. back to practicing a lot. And you know, I was a novice in the pageant world. So my mom and I sort of came up with a, a strategy, which was, you know, we're going to have to to study this because we don't know this. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what I did.
0: It's so interesting though, because it's like you were just talking about how like you're you're frustrated by people assuming less of you because mm-hmm. of because of your appearance, because you're a woman, because you have blonde hair. Yeah. Um, but this. But, like, this competition is also featuring those very things. Like, like I know a part of it is about, like, the talent competition. A part of it is, like, how you do in the interview. But then there's a big part of it that's about, like, how you look in a swimsuit. Mm-hmm. And it's about your appearance.
1: Well, back how, then even, it was only worth, like, 15% of the points.
0: Uh, yeah, I know. But it's also, like... Were you sort of like aware of that contradiction and what did you do with it in your mind? You know you what know, I mean?
1: See, I don't remember spending a lot of time, as analytical as I am, I don't I don't remember me spending a lot of time going, wow, this is a contradiction in my life. I think I looked at it like another violin competition, you know? And um, what did I have to do to work as hard as I possibly could to do to win. the best job?
0: Gretchen
1: Carlson, Miss Minnesota. It was it was after the fact that that night after that happened, I remember looking in the mirror in my hotel suite after I'd just partied with Merv Griffin and Ava Gabor and had pizza, <laughs> which was a surreal experience. Um And I remember looking in the bathroom mirror and being like, well, hell, now you did it. Now what?
0: Good question. What do you do when you've just been crowned Miss America? That's coming up after the break. Welcome back to Without Fail and my conversation with Gretchen Carlson. Now that she'd won Miss America, Gretchen embarked on the work of being Miss America, which meant a lot of public appearances. And one of those public appearances would turn out to have an especially big impact on her life. She appeared on a show that was popular at the time. This was the late 80s. And it was hosted by Dick Clark and Ed McMahon. And it was called TV's Bloopers and Practical Jokes. As you can probably guess from the title, it was a prank show. She thought that she'd been invited to make a presentation to a bunch of engineers and executives on a private TV feed about this new satellite system dubbed Miss America. The gag is, as she's getting ready to make this presentation, they all of a sudden go live before she's ready, without even her co-hosts on stage with her, and she has to vamp and improv her way through this presentation. In this clip, you'll hear Ed McMahon and Dick Clark narrating the action. Cue cards, cue cards.
1: Of course, these are cue cards, practical joke style. Well, we're back with the new invention you've all been waiting to see, this multi-sync integrated satellite system. Now, this oh, cue oh, card is developed, developed. upside down.
0: She's reading it anyway, Ed. She's amazing. Can
1: help, can Telecommunications Division of the Air Force Academy. It's a global receiver.
0: Yeah, go. She's asked for the next cue card, but they're all upside down. Yet she
1: keeps going. I can't believe. It. Uh, Do you remember that? Like it was yesterday. Uh, it was horrible. Listen, I had been Miss America for a week, and oh. then I go out to Denver, and
0: and what were they? What did they told you
1: about? To yeah, nothing. Honest? So, so they they. They, I thought I was speaking in front of 5,000 engineers via satellite who were all back in Washington, Uh D.C. And me being me in the makeup and prep room, I'm like, okay, I actually like to be prepared for things. So could somebody give me some notes? And they're like, don't worry, you don't have to know anything about this. I'm like, no. And so they never really gave me any notes. Uh And so I went out there. And then all of a sudden the floor director Stands up, he goes, oh, my gosh, we're going live early in five, four, three, two. And he looks at me, he goes, just start talking. <laughs> and I'm, like, standing there panicked, like, my worst nightmare because I don't know anything about this system. Uh-huh. So I give my, like, little spiel that I'd learned in the last seven days, which wasn't very long. You know, hi, I'm Gretchen Carlson. I'm the new Miss America. And I'm very pleased to be here and whatever else I said. And then I stopped. And he was like, oh, no, 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 you got to keep going. And this went on for
0: 14 torturous minutes. Oh, my God. Yes. What's fascinating watching it was I was like, I actually felt more sorry for the producers of the show than for you. Why? Because you don't <laughs> look panicked. Oh, my god! It's like, it's not, because as a producer of the show, you want somebody who's going to, like, fall apart a little bit more, because that's what's <laughs> Gee, funny <thanks>. about it. <laughs> and I'm just, I remember watching, I was like, oh, they, they should have cast a different person, because, like, you you just, you you look completely calm.
1: Well, thank you.
0: There's this one moment where, like, I feel like I can see in your eye where you're just sort of like, who are the bozos who let this happen?
1: (laughs) Well, maybe, but I was also thinking I was going to get fired.
0: Gretchen did not get fired from her job as Miss America. Instead, when the show finally aired, people noticed the same thing that I'd noticed, how remarkably poised she seemed under pressure. After that, a couple agents called me
1: and they were like, listen, if you can do that you can do TV. And I was like, "Really?" You know, it 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 got me into television. This the, This Bloopers and Practical Jokes got me into television.
0: Right. You had a couple of meetings with TV executives with PR people, and very quickly it seems like from what I've read in other places, you you found yourself getting harassed.
1: Actually assaulted. Although I never called it that until recently. Um You know, I was doing the right thing in my mind. I was cold calling executives because I I knew like, oh, I should probably strike while the iron's hot (laughs) and and try to, you know, get into this business and meet with these people while I can. And so I spent this day with this high-ranking television executive and he made all these phone calls for me and I was like, wow, he really believes in me. And um, we went to dinner and then we were in a car service and he was dropping me off at my friend's apartment in New York City. And all of a sudden, he was on top of me, lunging uh, at me, and he had his tongue down my throat. And I was like, what? Like, uh, I was completely panicked. Um, And I asked the driver to stop, and uh, somehow I rolled myself out of the car and— I went up to my friend's apartment and I was just a mess. You know, I think when women go through something like this, like the first reaction is you, you think about, what did I do? Like, what did I do to bring this on? We were simply having a conversation. He was helping me, you know, break into the business. I didn't really understand at the time that that also meant he wanted to break into my pants. <laughs> um, and so I told nobody. And then, unfortunately, it happened just like a couple weeks later. So I was in L.A. Again, I was cold calling top PR executives. And again, I was in a car. And just like without warning at all, we got into the car and he grabbed my neck with his hand. And he stuffed my head into his crotch and I couldn't breathe. Oh, my God. And, you know, again, I managed to... Escape And it's like these horrible experiences of not n- not really having a conversation like, bye. <laughs> you know, it's just like, you just assaulted me. And now, like, I, I'm panicked for my life and I'm trying to get away from you. Um, and, and it wasn't until everything that happened at Fox that I was interviewing um, another woman who was actually one of the Trump accusers. And she was a writer for People Magazine, and I was telling her about these stories. Mm -hmm. And she's like, you realize that was assault, right? And I was like, no, it wasn't. She goes, yeah, you realize that was assault, both of those situations. And I said, I guess. She's like, Gretchen, it was assault. And that was the first time I called it assault.
0: Mm. How'd that feel?
1: Uh, made me really vulnerable. Um, But also, I think it was freeing in a sense of being able to talk about it and really label it what it was.
0: Because it felt...
1: It felt... That's what it was. Yeah. You know? Um, But at the time, I just bottled it up and put it somewhere in my psyche. And then, unfortunately, you know, it happened at my first job, too, so... I sort of became familiar with it. Mm-hmm. And at that job, it was just, there was so much irony involved because one of the first stories I covered was the Anita Hill hearings. And I remember, you know, watching those hearings and thinking to myself, why don't they believe her? And then I, you know, I was out on the shoot and then I got, I got harassed by one of my photographers. And that, that episode actually I felt was life-threatening. Because we were in a rural part of the state, and I was just with him in a car, and he started talking to me about how I had enjoyed it when he put the microphone on my breasts, and, and it kind of went downhill from there. And when we got back to the station, of course, I wasn't going to tell anybody, and the, um, the news director at the time kept approaching me and asking me what was wrong.
0: Uh-huh.
1: He knew something was wrong. And I kept saying, nothing, nothing, nothing. And he finally convinced me to tell him. You know, I give him a tremendous amount of credit because uh-huh. that was a lot of years ago and it was a man who cared. Uh-huh. So, yeah, so I had, the, I had these things happen to me early on that, I, you know, I didn't really talk about. Mm-hmm. Then I had a lot of years where nothing happened.
0: But those bad experiences with men early on in her career would turn out not to be the last of it, not by a long shot. That's coming up after the break. Welcome back to Without Fail and my conversation with Gretchen Carlson. In spite of the experiences she had with assault and harassment at the very start of her career, Gretchen stuck with TV, and she climbed the ladder. Her first job as a reporter at a station in Virginia opened the door to another job at a slightly bigger station and then a slightly bigger job after that, by the year 2000, with a decade of experience under her belt, she landed a job in New York, reporting for CBS. And then, in 2005, she made the jump to Fox News. What did you think when you first got the job and you, you showed up on your first day? Like, what were you thinking? How How was that fitting into your career?
1: It was a great opportunity. I had been doing the Saturday morning early show at CBS, and this was potentially an opportunity to do a morning show five days a week, which was always my goal, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, Doing morning TV was an opportunity to sort of showcase all the range of your personality. Um, In fact, my mom would always, back in the old days when I'd send her tapes of my work and I'd, you know, have like a triple alarm fire behind me, and she'd be like, you know, it would just be so so much more entertaining if you could just smile a little bit more. I'd be like, Mom, I'm covering a triple homicide, okay? Um, You don't really laugh during that. And she'd be like, but I just want people to know who you really are, you know? And so when I finally got this opportunity to do five days a week and really show this all-encompassing range, Mm -hmm. I remember the first day that I went there, my mom happened to be in New York City, and um, I saw her— after the show, and she was like, this must be the happiest day of your life. And I said, yeah, pretty much.
0: <laughs> because it was just, it just felt like, why, why? It was, why was a
1: culmination of a tremendous amount of hard work and moving to all these different cities and making my way up in my career and, um, and finally getting to the epitome of what I had, you know, worked so hard to, to achieve, an amazing life lesson about how, you know, you can think you're sitting at the pinnacle of your career and you have no idea the horror flick that's about to be
0: shown. Yeah. So you started there in 2005. And this was not just moving to another sort of like network. This was moving to, Fox had staked a position. There was a take and there was like, one side, and there was another side. And, like, at CBS, you can sort of be like, well, we're, like, you know, we're in the middle. And now you're, like, you're a, you're part of the fight.
1: Well, I would say that back then, it it's hard to remember that in 2005, it wasn't like it is in 2019. It was, yeah, it was— But it
0: was still, like, very much, like— there was the faux news and like that that was in the- Not
1: when I've, no, not when i started there. I have to be totally honest with you. For me, it was like, it was opportunity uh-huh. and it was also learning new skills. Going from network to cable was like relearning the whole craft. Mm-hmm. You know, you got 24 hours to fill as opposed to just a half hour newscast yeah, on the yeah. network, right? Yeah. So there's a lot of ad-libbing and yeah. there's a lot of like, you just got to go with the flow and talk.
0: Yeah. Describe, like, your day-to-day, like, sort of before the horror movie started. Like, what's just just a day in the life of?
1: So, you know, when I was doing The Morning Show, I, I got up really early. Um, my husband had this amazing idea to move out to the suburbs. <laughs> when I was already getting up in, you know, in the middle of the night, and then I was going to add another hour to get, getting up uh, extra early. But uh, he's from the Midwest, too, and he's like, wouldn't it be great if our kids could have a yard? And oh, I yeah. was like, yeah, kind of. Um, so anyway, um, so I, I got up, like, I think I, I set my alarm for 347, and because it would literally, you know, I could be out of the house in, I think I got it down to eight minutes. You know, I would brush my teeth, jump in the shower, put on my clothes in the dark, um, and run downstairs and and get in the car and then immediately start studying nonstop, like for a final. Studying what? Everything for the you know all the interviews, all the
0: uh-huh.
1: yeah, massive amounts of material. Because mm-hmm. listen, you had to be up on every world event, anything that had happened in the news, and a lot of stuff happened overnight. So, uh, you know, I had to be really prepared. So that was you know I. I spent a lot of years not sleeping a lot, and I had two babies at the time, and so I didn't nap. I'm not a good napper anyway. I wish uh-huh. I was, but— um,
0: <laughs> You don't seem like a good napper. Oh,
1: gosh, I know. I'm so envious <laughs> of my husband. He, like, sleeps standing up. You know, the minute, the minute we get on an airplane, he's, like, out, and I'm, like, wide awake, like, waiting for the next thing to happen. But um, anyway, yeah, so, so you know, I just got into into a routine,
0: From the outside, Gretchen had gotten her wish, a job co-hosting a big morning news show five days a week. But as we've since learned through news reports and through the lawsuit she ultimately filed against Roger Ailes, the reality behind the scenes was very different. According to her suit, the harassment started early on. There were demeaning remarks and treatment from one of her co-hosts, which Fox management didn't take seriously. And then there was the overt harassment from Ailes himself. Gretchen's lawsuit says that when she didn't give in to Ailes' come-ons, she was demoted, taken off the morning show, and moved to a lower-rated afternoon slot. And eventually, in late June of 2016, she was fired. And that's when she realized she had a big decision to make.
1: The decision to come forward was painstaking and the most... (sighs) most difficult thing I've ever done in my life. But, you know... When um, I realized that a career that I had worked so hard for was going to be taken away from me, and it wasn't my choice. If I didn't figure out how I could find the courage to jump off the cliff,
0: then who was going to do it? Mm-hmm. You said it was the hardest decision that you've ever made. What were you, in your head? What was the on the one hand, on the other hand? <laughs> um, when you do something like that.
1: First of all, you know for sure that you're going to be maligned. Mm-hmm. And my lawyers had prepared me for that. And I was. Right. But there would be no way that I could have been able to predict how it was all going to end up.
0: I'm curious, like, I also got the sense that this has been a journey for your whole family. has that evolved? you know, no matter how old you get, you
1: always want your parents' approval. I mean, uh-huh. it's sort of just the way life works. And growing up in Minnesota, everyone's it's like, there's this Minnesota nice thing. And so suing people's not really on the top of mind for people. <laughs> That's not nice. <laughs> no, it's not nice. And so I think my parents were not too keen on that idea originally. But one of the biggest points in my decision making was a phone call with them and i can still see exactly where i was sitting and i was in the dark and it was night and they were both on the phone with me and they said we're behind you
0: you you laid out this is and, what i want to do well
1: i've been talking about it yeah for a long time and they said finally said we're with you not that that was the discerning moment but it certainly made a big impact on me, that I knew I had their support.
0: Fox News host Gretchen Carlson has filed a lawsuit against the network CEO Roger Ailes. Next tonight, a lawsuit against the head of Fox News. Former anchor Gretchen Carlson today suing chairman and CEO Roger Ailes, accusing him of sexual harassment. It's probably no surprise that Gretchen's decision to sue came only after a lot of preparation. In fact, it was reported in New York Magazine that she had been secretly taping conversations with Roger Ailes for many months, if not years. When she eventually settled her claims in an agreement reportedly worth $20 million, the conditions of that settlement prohibited her from talking publicly about almost anything that happened in her time at Fox. Which is why, in our interview, a number of the questions I asked didn't get an answer. You recorded conversations with Roger Ailes, and like those recordings became part of the lawsuit that you filed against him. Um, I think I know the answer to this, but can you even tell me about like how... That, you can't tell me about how that felt to like actually go into the room with the recorder going, can you? I can't talk about that. Okay. Figured. Um, so you're not allowed to talk about it, but here's a partial list of the things your suit accuses Roger Ailes of. Uh, calling you a man-hater who tries to show up the boys. Asking you to turn around so he could view your posterior. Commenting that certain outfits enhanced your figure and urging you to wear them every day commenting on your legs, wondering how anyone could be married to you while making sexual advances. He embarrassed you by saying in your presence that he'd slept with three former Miss Americas, but not you, telling you that you were sexy, but too much hard work, and saying to you that I think you and I should have had a sexual relationship a long time ago. That's a partial list. I'd like to hear all those things listed out?
1: I mean, I think I would just say, unfortunately, that's probably really familiar for millions of women. You know, women are socialized to be really nice and not make a ruckus. <laughs> don't be too aggressive. You know, don't be too ambitious. And also not to be a troublemaker. So when these things happen to women all too often in the workplace, they don't say anything. And when they do, they're done. Mm-hmm.
0: The fact that we have a public record at all of Gretchen's account is the result of a very canny decision by her legal team. According to reports at the time, Gretchen was subject to a clause in her contract with Fox News called an arbitration clause. It basically obligated her to work through any dispute she had with the company in private, keeping it out of court and shielded from public view. By suing Ailes personally, Gretchen's lawyers got around that. Her account of what she had experienced became a public document, one that people can see and read and have read aloud to them on podcasts. And the strategy of making her claims public through that suit, it worked. Roger Ailes, one of the most powerful men in television, resigned just two weeks after it was filed, forced out by mounting evidence that he'd harassed many other women at Fox. You settled with Fox News in the fall of 2016. This was weeks before the Access Hollywood tapes came forward of Trump.
1: That was October. These are dates you never forget.
0: Yeah. What was it like when you heard that Access Hollywood tape in the Mm -hmm. midst of all this?
1: It was really ironic because I had just shot the cover of Time magazine. Uh The first interview I did on my story. And so I hadn't been looking at the news for a Uh couple of hours. And I was in the car coming back from the photo shoot. And on the radio, they were talking about it. And... The first thing I thought to myself was, Billy Bush is going to lose his job. I'm not saying it's right. I'm right. just saying that that was the,
0: right. you know. Did you think that Donald Trump would get elected at that point?
1: And, uh, well, I had seen so many other things. Having covered presidential candidates for two decades, I had never seen any other presidential candidate be able to say a myriad of things that he had said and still be in the race. You know, he had already said the things about McCain, he had already said the things about Mexicans, he had already said Uh, so many other things that I think that's why my first thought was about Billy Bush.
0: Oh. Yeah. Looking back on the Me Too movement from our vantage point in 2019, it can feel like it all happened at once. But when you map out the timeline, Gretchen was way out in front. She filed her suit in the summer of 2016, and it wasn't until almost a year later, in April of 2017, that a New York Times investigation exposed other instances of harassment at Fox News, this time by host Bill O'Reilly. And the Harvey Weinstein story didn't break until months after that. You you were essentially a year and a half before the Harvey Weinstein stories and, and, and the Me Too movement as we think of it really took off. and. I think in our heads, I think we sort of put them all together, but like that was a year and a half of just sort of waiting around and like not, not how was that, what was that year and a half like for you?
1: <laughs> I immediately started hearing from these women, first dozens and hundreds and thousands of women. Right. And, and I realized that I had a lot of work to do.
0: You immediately started hearing. Who was the first oh woman you heard from?
1: Oh my God. It wasn't just one. I mean, they just started pouring in. And of course, my good Midwestern work ethic was like, oh, I need to write back all these women, just like I wrote all those handwritten thank you notes as a kid. And so I started writing back to all of them, and then it turned into hundreds. And I'm like, wow, I hope I can keep up with this. And then it was thousands. And, you know, it wasn't an easy process to read all these stories because they were all horrible and painful.
0: Uh-huh.
1: And I started printing them all off in my home office, and I had stacks of them.
0: It was just emails? And,
1: yeah. Yeah, they found me on my website. And they just they knew that I got it. And they trusted me because they knew I would understand them. And so they just poured out their entire life story. So that was really the beginning. The what really buoyed me, to be quite honest with you, in my darkness, was all of these other women making me realize it wasn't about me anymore. It was about our culture. Mm-hmm. And what I have figured out is that fixing this issue is a tangled web. I mean, it's complicated. And my husband will joke with me like, hey, how can you be more busy now than when you had a full-time job being on TV every day? (laughs) I'm like, I know, because there's just so much to do. And other people say to me, you know, you could have just gone home and just spent more time with your dog and your kids. And I'm like, yeah. Uh But that wouldn't have been the right thing to do, and it wouldn't be like me to do that. Because I realized that I could help. At least try. Mm -hmm.
0: Since settling with Fox News, Gretchen Carlson has been speaking out against the policies and practices that so often keep women from talking about the conditions of their work. The same policies and practices that have kept her from speaking openly about the conditions of her own work at Fox. Settlements and forced arbitration. She's pushing for federal legislation that would prohibit forced arbitration clauses in employment agreements and testified before Congress just last month.
1: The way we've decided to resolve harassment cases in our culture is to shut women up. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I actually feel like it's it's one of the main reasons why this movement has stayed alive is because the American public was so pissed off when they started hearing about these egregious cases and Mm -hmm. things that happened to women. Mm -hmm. And they were like... We're still doing that to women. They were like, why have we not been hearing about these cases? Right. And I would argue that one of the main reasons is because they were all going to these secret chambers. So these were not being broadcast, you know? And so we we sort of lost 20 years of time from Anita Hill until, until now. Where there's no court sessions happening
0: with these cases, right? We lost twenty years of twenty what years of should precedent, have been public record. Yes, and of and, all of this and precedent, happening. and moving yeah.
1: forward with laws, and yeah. you know the way in which the law has evolved in in every other aspect of the law. Right. You know, when you go to arbitration, there you don't get the same amount of depositions or witnesses. There are no appeals, so it's not really like going to court, and it's secret. Yeah. So there's like this vacuous, you know, space where the court system has not dealt with these issues, and Therefore, the general public didn't know about them. Mm-hmm. And and so, in a weird way, I think it's actually helped to keep the movement going because the American public has stayed interested in wanting to know mm-hmm. why.
0: Well, the general public did know about them, but they, all, they didn't know that it was happening to anybody else. <laughs> they thought well, it was happening to, well, to, themselves. to themselves. It's a
1: great point because— as it turns out, almost every woman has a story, and that's tragic. Mm-hmm. You know, what I found out after I jumped off the cliff was that it wasn't really about me. All of these stories of these women who reached out to me were eerily similar, and the outcomes were eerily similar, and it was, they were all painful. Say more. What was similar? They were all—I finally mustered up the courage to come forward, and I was promptly blacklisted, demoted, and fired. I would say that 99.9% of all the women who reached out to me never worked in their chosen profession ever again. And that's outrageous. And so when you think about the lost dreams of all of these women in our country, they've worked just as hard as everyone else. I don't care what their job is. Because it crosses every socioeconomic level, every profession, You know, from fast food workers up to Wall Street. And the idea that we're okay with all these women having their careers and their lives taken from them. I'm not okay with that.
0: Since settling with Fox in September of 2016, Gretchen has started the Gretchen Carlson Leadership Initiative, which offers training sessions and legal counsel to women dealing with workplace sexual harassment and assault. Her documentary about the struggles of everyday women who have spoken out against their own experiences is available through Lifetime. It's called Gretchen Carlson, Breaking the Silence. Without Fail is hosted by me and produced by Molly Messick, Rob Zipko, and Hibba El-Arbani. It is edited by me and Devin Taylor. Music and mixing by Bobby Lord. If you like Without Fail, follow us. You can get every episode for free through Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.